This week's lectionary reading from the Gospel is from the 10th chapter of Mark. It's commonly known as Jesus meeting with the rich young ruler. Although none of the three versions of this story in the Gospels present all three of these characteristics. In Matthew, he is young. In Luke, he is a ruler. Only in Mark do all three agree he is wealthy. But Mark implies he may be older. Uh, He is a person with many possessions, and the Greek word for possessions can mean more than money. He may be, in fact, a wealthy landowner. We may think of him as a a guy, a, a real estate mogul, who's maybe a Donald Trump kind of a person, just wheeling and dealing. And before hearing this story, just note that it takes place after Jesus has has predicted his coming failure and nullification publicly in Jerusalem. He has warned his disciples about the dangerousness of trying to stay up with him. And he has turned his face to go with determination to Jerusalem, to the city that he wept over and for which I imagine he still weeps. This final journey for Jesus gains elevation as it approaches the walled city, but in fact, it is a journey of downward mobility in fulfillment of the mystery of God's calling and God's love for the world. Let us listen for the word of God. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man came up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all of these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the man heard this, He was shocked, and he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. This is the word of the Lord. I look out over this assembly, and I um, am so appreciative of uh, the relationships I have with you. I'm so uh, glad to be serving in this congregation and I care about you, and I almost want to apologize for beginning this way. It feels a little abrupt, but I want to ask you this question. Do you know where you're going when you die? I mean, some of you are probably thinking, I don't even know where I'm going for lunch after this is over, but do you know where you're going when you die? What must we do to be sure we're going to heaven? I mean, isn't that why we're here? 
Isn't this that why we keep coming? Isn't that why our name is on the roll so that we can answer that question? And so Jesus is confronted today by a man who asks our question, what do I have to do? How can I be sure? And we just want Jesus to lay it out for him. This is your chance, Jesus. Stop beating around the bush. No more things like, I am the bread of life, and, you know, I am the narrow way. Just put it out there. What do you have to do to get to heaven? Please. You could just say, no, you don't have to earn it. You can't work for it. Just confess your sins. Trust in Jesus' death on the cross. Accept him as your Lord and Savior, and you're in. Just make it simple. Saved by grace through faith. But no. No, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus doesn't say anything like this. In fact, he starts talking about the commandments and giving away money. It sounds like works righteousness to me. Doesn't seem to fit with our Reformed theology at all. That should be a clue that perhaps we have missed something along the way. How do you hear the question, what do I do to inherit eternal life? In English, the word eternal or eternity calls to mind heaven, things beyond life outside of time and space. Kind of a platonic idea. It's not a biblical idea. In the biblical Greek, the word zoe eonoias refers to the Jewish idea of how time is split in two. There is this present time, this present age, the time we're living in now, Paul even calls it this evil age. It's this age when all of creation is groaning. It is this age when it seems like the bad guys win too often, when the will of God seems to be ignored so much, and we wonder even, God, where are you, and why aren't you intervening? It is this age in which we struggle. And then there is the age to come, the age of God's peace and justice and healing. It is this age that we pray for when we say the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's purpose is not to rescue us from out of the world, but to heal this world from its present state of corruption. Remember when Jesus got up in the synagogue in his hometown. He was asked to read the scroll, and he started reading, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and and so on. You remember how it ended? You remember what scandalized the people? He said, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. I have ushered in the new age. It has come with me. The eternal now has begun. And so the man was not 
coming to Jesus, asking him, how do I get to heaven when I die? He is asking about this new world that God is now bringing into being, asking how he can be among those who inherit or receive or participate in this new world, this eternal life. What must I do to start living this life in God's new age, this eternal quality of life? That's what he's asking. But because we've misread Zoe Ionoius so much, we force all the material in Jesus and in the Gospels about Jesus to be about this question, do you know where you're going when you die? And we interpret Jesus' conflicts with his opponents to be about two different systems to answer that question. The Pharisee system was follow the rules, even all the petty, silly rules, just follow them, and you'll know where you go when you die. That's how you know. And then there was Jesus' system, which was much more fun and easygoing, full of grace. And, of course, we know that, really, that caricature of Jesus and his opponents is not fair to either Jesus or the Pharisees. But Jesus answers the man's question first by saying, keep the commandments. Started listing the commandments. And interestingly, he inserts one in there that wasn't a part of the original. Did you get that? He he includes, among all the, the normal ones we know, he includes, do not defraud. Hmm. Maybe it's that in a world where there were only two kinds of people, the super rich and the very poor, that those who had wealth enjoyed it at the expense of those who were without. Maybe Jesus knew that this man, whether he knew it or not, was benefiting from the suffering of, of others and felt that this was deeply wounding the heart of God. We know that the care of the poor and the sharing of resources is a part of the the basic message of the prophets of the Old Testament, and yet it's so easy for us to fall back into the assumptions about wealth and possessions as being a sign of God's favor. The rich man must make amends, says Jesus. He must come to terms with his neighbors. I was reminded of this uh, a number of years ago when I went to Nicaragua, and um, among the things we did there were, were to, we picked coffee beans. We were up in the mountains, it was beautiful, and it was, they grew great coffee, and the, the coffee bushes were about, they were big, and you, would, you could spend a, an hour or more just on one bush picking these little red beans and filling up five-gallon buckets of coffee beans. And for that, you'd get 10 or 15 cents per bucket. And so if you were lucky, you'd make $1.50 a day if you were a worker picking coffee beans. 
And then I think about what I pay at Starbucks for my coffee. <laughs> and I think about where is the disconnect here? Someone is making plenty of money, but it's not the people that are picking the little red beans. So the man replies to Jesus, I know those commandments. I'm not a newbie. I've been raised in the synagogue, and I've been keeping the commandments. I've kept them all my life. It just doesn't seem like enough. I used to think that this man's answer was arrogant. That how could anyone claim to keep all the commandments? Where is your humility? Try to be realistic about yourself. But that's not the point of this. This man is struggling with a deep hunger that following the rules is not going to satisfy. Today we might call this rich man a seeker. A seeker. We all know people that are seekers. We tend to think of them as the unchurched. And so when a seeker comes, we need to explain the rules and uh, help them to follow the commandments and, and get with the program. But, but what if there are seekers here? What if there are people who are already following the rules? What if we have seekers right here in the balcony or here in the choir? What if we have seekers at session meetings or in staff meetings? What if there are people all around us who sense that there is something more and that following the rules, meeting expectations, serving on committees, working to be good and nice just isn't enough. It's not bringing the grace that we hunger for, the transformation that we know we need. Jesus looked at that person and loved him. Perhaps that is why this story is so poignant. Because Jesus doesn't deliver some kind of harsh, oppressive instruction or judgment. He looks tenderly at this person. He sees into his heart. He knows what he needs at his deepest level. And we sense that Jesus words to him are meant to free him from everything that binds him up. Jesus gives him an invitation to join the family, to come into the inner circle, to do the difficult thing that will restore his relationship with those on the margins of life. Make no mistake about it, Jesus draws a line in the sand with this guy. But it's not about going to heaven. It's about living an eternal quality of life, an abundant life. Jesus tells him, you can't live just any way you want, just any way the culture wants you to live, and expect to enter into an eternal quality of life. It doesn't work that way. Princess Diana once said, she said, I've heard that it's better to be poor and happy than rich and miserable. 
But how about a compromise like moderately rich and just moody? <laughs> Jesus would say, no, Diana, in order to inherit eternal life, there has to be an interchange that must occur. There must be some decision. There must be some kind of relinquishment, some form of letting go, some repentance, some turning, some way of opening to something new that God would do. The young man knows in his heart that Jesus is right. That's why he's grieving. He goes away grieving because he knows Jesus has spoken the truth. And it makes him sad as he walks away knowing he's going back to what is not satisfying, what is not ultimately going to work. Love has a way of seeing. And those who love us best see us best. Jesus sees this man as he truly is, even in a way that this young man could not see himself. I like to imagine how the sequel to the story might be. Perhaps in the days that followed, the man rethought his decision about walking away, just as we might rethink our lives and listen to that call to follow Jesus. For it's not too late, it wasn't too late for that man, it wasn't too late to recalibrate, to hear the voice of God anew, and to make a new kind of response. Here I am, Lord. Amen.